So I've been in banking for about 10 years. I've been on the storage team since it was created in 2015. The most important thing to me is the market itself. What are the market rates looking like? Oh, no. Touching on that, it just makes me think of those risks. Uh, you know, coming from the lending side, uh, what are those risks that you guys are looking at analyzing? Obviously, you're looking at the feasibility study. You're looking at supply. Uh, that's a big question for a lot of people. Hey, everybody. Connor and I work really hard to try to bring the best podcast in self-storage that we can. We ask a lot of guests, we do a lot of research, and a lot of work goes into it. If you could help us out by leaving a review, it's so easy. You just go down on whatever device, Spotify, Apple, whatever you're using, leave a great review. It really helps us out. Thanks, everybody. What's going on, everybody? Connor here from the Self Storage Income Podcast. I am super excited to jump into today's episode. But first, we've got to give a huge shout out to our incredible partners and sponsors here on the Self Storage Income Podcast. If you're looking to develop or build a self-storage facility, whether that's a brand new facility or maybe you want to expand, Forge Building Company is going to be a phenomenal partner for you guys to check out and potentially partner with. They specialize in working with investors and developers, whether you're new or you're seasoned in the self-storage industry. A huge problem that people make is they think that self-storage is just that. It's just self-storage. It's not a big deal. However, there are ways to value engineer building self-storage that uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of structural, that just they don't quite understand. And if you're not using someone like Forge Building Company to come in and value engineer that storage facility for you, you're going to end up spending a ton more money than you need to be. You want to keep those costs low when you're developing. You want to control those costs. And that means you need to work with the experts. Forge Building Company is that expert. Link is in the show notes. Check them out. Welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. And today we have Anna Taylor with us. She is the head of self storage lending for Live Oak Bank. And right now, with what's happening in the markets and what's going on, we know that this is very timely. Although, um, speaking of timely, when this comes out, I don't know, we're either at the event or it's already past the event. It'll already be passed. Yeah. It'll already be passed. Yeah, we'll have partied. Hard. That's right. It'll be uh, another one in the books. That's right. So <laughs> yeah, you have to look to see how that went, everybody. But with that, we got so much to cover. Let's just jump right in. How are you? Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Um, crazy, crazy time out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me um, as a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's definitely an interesting time to be lending in self-storage lending in general right now. Um, you know, the, the instability within markets and um, changes in interest rates just keep us on our toes. Um, but it's there's still great deals out there to be had. And I think um, you know, the markets may be scaring away some people that might be jumping into markets. So I think there's a chance to to go in and kind of be bold when others are a little are being more cautious. Yeah, hundred percent. We we think that too. We we think we're going to you know, especially you know, as sellers are readjusting and as buyers are running away, and uh, you know that breeds opportunity for us. So we're, we're very excited about it. Um, but tell me, how long have you been um, in the banking world? What? Uh... 
So I've been in banking for about 10 years. I've been on the storage team since it was created in 2015. So I've been lending exclusively to self-storage customers for the past seven years um, and kind of just doing it all, helping people buy, build, acquire, expand, refinance, kind of doing it all within self-storage. So um, I work on a team of all storage specialists. Um, and since 2015, we've closed over a billion dollars in loans to self-storage owner operators. So it's been really fun to be a part of the industry for the past seven years. It's certainly changed a lot. Um, and I think more exciting things lay ahead. That's amazing. That, that is wild. That's a yeah. lot of self-storage. That is. That's a ton. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, I, uh, I can imagine that you've probably seen a lot of changes over the last few months. So why don't we just dive right into that? Kind of talk to us about how it's been over the last 10 years and maybe what you're starting, uh, what you're starting to see out there or here. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been, it's been such a change. So when I started in 2015, um, self-storage was not as popular as it is right now. It was kind of um, to the side of all the other real estate asset classes and multifamily and retail and office space were kind of reigning supreme. Um, but I think the last couple of years have shown just how resilient self-storage is um, and resistant to a lot of market pressures that, that other real estate asset classes have been kind of under over the last two years. So I've just seen a lot more interest um, as I've been lending in self-storage in the last, I would say four years, interest has really gone up a lot. And a lot of people that have been in real estate for a long time, but maybe in single family rentals or maybe in multifamily or maybe doing a mix of office retail, kind of saying, okay, I wanna come over to the dark side and, and, and join self-storage. So self-storage has really gone from the real estate asset class that was kind of junky that nobody wanted to talk about to now being kind of the bell of the ball. Um, so that's been really interesting to really interesting to be a part of. Um, back in 2015, when we were lending on the construction side. It seemed like almost all markets, you know, it were good markets to build and self storage. All the feasibility studies were coming back super positive, um, just because we were still kind of coming off the recession where nothing was built for at least five to seven years. So there was a lot of pent up demand. And so I remember thinking, like, why are we requiring these feasibility studies? they're always positive. And in the last couple of years, I really understand why now with so much construction and so much being built, there are less and less slam dunk projects to be found. And there's some markets that are just oversaturated. So it's really important um, to be doing due diligence because it could be saving you from making a multi-million dollar mistake if you're buying or building in the wrong market. Oh, no. Touching on that, it just makes me think of those risks. Uh, you know, coming from the lending side, uh, what are those risks that you guys are looking at analyzing? Obviously, you're looking at the feasibility study. You're looking at supply. Just give us a rundown of some of those metrics that you as a lender are looking at um, as far as risk goes. Uh, that's a big question for a lot of people. Yeah, we really rely on that feasibility study and we're picky about who we'll accept them from. We have a kind of a list of approved vendors and we're always kind of pruning that list, adding on. Um, if we find out somebody that's doing good studies, we can take away if, if we see you know mistakes being made. But the feasibility study is really important because it's an impartial third party that's an expert in self-storage taking a look at your project and saying, you know, not only just yes or no, but showing you you know, this is what your competitors are looking like. These are the market rates. Here's what I think that you can get. Here's what I think your first five years of business is going to look like. And that's incredibly important to us as a lender because we underwrite off of those 
projections. And I think it's really important to have somebody that has no financial stake in your project doing that kind of due diligence. Um, just because the closer and closer you get to your project, the more that you can be you can have blind spots just because you're so close to it. You're, you know, you're invested financially, you're invested emotionally. It's kind of like if you have children and you look at your children, you think, oh gosh, they're so cute. These are the cutest kids in the world. I've got two kids, um, but you love them. And that's why you think they're so cute. And sometimes you need somebody, if you've got an ugly baby in self-storage to say, hey, that's an ugly baby. Um, so those feasibility studies are, are super important, especially now with so much construction that's been going on. And people talk about, you know, square foot per capita, um, but that's not really important to me. I always like to look at, the most important thing to me is the market itself. What are the market rates looking like? What are the uh, market occupancy of your, your competitors? Are they full? Are they leasing up? And then the third thing that they cover in a feasibility study is they have access to all of these, you know, construction databases and permitting pipelines to show, hey, there's a facility that's that just pulled a permit two miles down, that's gonna impact you so much more than a competitor across the street that's 100% full. Um, or they may say like, hey, there's somebody who re who's requesting a zoning change for self-storage, like literally across the street from you, you know, this could impact your project because that that's where the biggest risks are if you're building is just basically anybody kind of building in the same micro market because that can impact your lease up, it can take longer, it can be more expensive. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what I think the, the the true value of the report is, is kind of taking a look at at new threats to your to your project. For sure. Now that's pure gold because the you know people have all these different metrics they're looking at and trying to analyze when they're looking at these markets. And like you said, square foot per capita is such a big one, and um, it really just kind of solidifies the fact that yeah, you need to be looking at metrics, but more importantly, you need to be looking at the metrics that really truly matter. Yes. Right. And what are you seeing? Um, my question would be, what what are you seeing on that construction front? Are you seeing people start to pull back from the developments right now? Are you seeing, like, uh, how's that how's that market looking, or is it still going strong? So, I mean, we lend in all all fifty states. So I've got projects all across the country, and there are some people that are a little bit concerned um, with with things and might say, "Hey, I just want to wait for a little bit." Um, there are other people that are getting the costs come in, and it's a it's a bit of a sticker shock think, thinking that you had a three million dollar project, but really it's looking more like four and a half. Um, so I would say there's a mix. I would say a lot of people are still choosing to move ahead, and here's why I think that's a good idea. Um, because yes, interest rates are kind of going up a little bit. Construction costs are going up a little bit. That's tough. That's that's hard to get comfortable with. But if you think about it, it's making it more difficult for other people to develop as well. So I think the people that move forward now are ultimately going to be rewarded because if it was like back in when it was 2018, it was cheap to borrow money. It was cheap to build. What happened? We had like crazy overbuilding in some markets. So if you've got a really good market and you've got high rental rates and it pencils out, I would say move forward because a lot of other developers are not are kind of scared looking in these kind of this changing environment and might hang back. So that way, when you open, you're not competing against a couple of new facilities. You've got more control over the rates that you can charge and you'll be in a better spot at, at raising the, the price as you lease up over time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, you know, I view um, lots of advantages right now in the building. Um, and you're exactly right. People are just way more cautious right now, as they, so they should be, 
right? And two, a lot of people that don't feel that they have a good idea. There, there's a lot of people that were building from convenience. It's in my city. I Self-storage doesn't have toilets, right? I own the land. That's not a good reason to build a multi-million dollar asset. And I think a lot of those people stop, which is great. That's actually what everybody wants to see. You don't want somebody flippantly putting units out onto the market. Yes. I mean, I think that overdevelop, if you have those developers that aren't smart and making and, and building for not the right reasons for not doing their due diligence, they're not, they're not helping themselves for sure, but they're not helping the, the, you know, the market and the industry as well. Um, but I think you're right. I think those, those are the people that are going to kind of be put to the side. And I think a lot of people are like, I'm just going to wait for things to calm down. But I can think of two customers that, that I was talking with in 2020. And they're like, these costs are going, you know, they're going up. I think I'm just going to sit it out and just wait for them to come down. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. Costs have not come down. And they are not in a better position by, by moving forward now than they would have been if they just stuck with the plan in, in 2020. Um, so I think that kind of waiting for something to be perfect is, is just not feasible. Um, but I do really think the people that move ahead, especially in the markets where, you know, you have really good rental rates to justify the cost of construction, that's going to be good. If you're getting $200 for a 10 by 10 in your city and everything is full, even if it's expensive to build, you should probably do it. If you're getting 70 bucks for a climate controlled 10 by 10 in a rural area, Maybe not. Maybe, it, you know, yeah. construction costs just can't be justified by the rental rates that you can get. So I think it's kind of balancing the strength of the market um, in terms of rental rates, but also market occupancy. Um, but I think other other kind of less dedicated uh, developers are getting kind of scared off by the instability um, in today's financing markets. Now, what are you seeing as far as fill up rates today? Um, have those started to slow down? Um, are you starting to see um, a little pullback on what you guys view as um, uh, rates? Like, are they softening? Well, so the thing is, we are in all 50 states. So there are probably markets where things are softening, and there are probably markets where rental rates are up 26% in one year. So yep. it really, really depends. And so that's why when customers are kind of asking me, like, how are, rent, uh, like how are rates overall? I mean, there's national averages, but the, you're going to be playing in a three-mile micro-market, three to five-mile micro-market. So I can't say specifically to that area what's going to happen. So that's why that due diligence is just so crucial to see what's happening to rental rates. Are rental rates kind of clipping up at a good speed? Are, are you know, is there a facility that was built within the last three years? How is it doing? Is it full now? That's great. If it is still kind of, you know, sitting at 40% occupancy, that's probably a soft market. So it's really, yeah. it's so hyper-location specific. Yeah. Now um, let's talk on, on the other side of this coin, acquisitions. Um, acquisitions to me are a lot more affected by interest rates not in the form of buying, like people ask, you know, are you still buying or whatnot? And my, if, it, my, my viewpoint is if uh, interest rates rise by 2% and that kills the deal, I shouldn't have been doing the deal, right? So um, for me, it's not that, but it is more along the line on like sellers, right? And what people are willing to take and what people, how, how many people are jumping into the market and who has access to capital, particularly when you get into not first tier coastal markets, right? right. Um, so what are you seeing on that end? Yeah, so I think it was tough. I think sellers were having a 
very good to be an owner in self-storage and sell in the last two years, life has been pretty good for you. You were getting really high um, prices because cap rates were so low. Um, there was ready, ready access to capital for people to borrow and buy. And so it was kind of good to be good to be king. It was good to be a self-storage seller. You know, those days you could have a pretty crappy facility and be selling it for a five cap and people would be, you know, bidding it up over ask. Um, but the market's changed a little bit. And I think that's that's going to be good for the buyers. So I think sellers for a while have been trying to kind of hang on to those high prices aren't kind of seeing, you know, the fish aren't biting at that price and are kind of moving down and getting a little bit more realistic, um, you know, to see what kind of price is going to attract the right, the right buyer, um, just because interest rates are a little bit higher. So people cannot finance as much as they could, you know, two years ago. So I think it's an exciting time for, for, for buyers because we have this kind of market readjustment, sellers are coming off these prices. And I think there's still really good deals to be had. I think the most important thing to do is obviously when you're looking at facilities, you'll do your own kind of internal underwriting first. And, you know, talk to a lender, talk to a bank to make sure that you're working off of accurate interest rates. Because if you're factoring in something at a certain interest rate and like it looks great and you make an offer at that and then go, go to a bank and, and realize that you were way off, that your offer doesn't look that attractive anymore from a financing perspective. So work on the most up-to-date data as you can, just because things are changing so quickly. And so if, if a bank quoted you an interest rate, you know, six months ago, just realize that's probably not going to be the same interest rate they're going to give you today. So always work off the most current data that you can um, when you're, when you're kind of approaching sellers and trying to get something under contract. When you see, people buying storage facilities, kind of the same question that Connor was asking before on the development side, like what are the things that scare you when you're looking at that acquisition? What are your things that say, hey, hold on here, we need to look at this? We understand the turnaround acquisition. A lot of banks are scared away by tertiary markets, by a rural facility, by something that's a little bit older. We've been lending in this for seven years. We've seen long-term that our portfolio of loans perform really well. We understand how sometimes you're buying something not for what the seller is doing with it right now, but something that you can do with it later. Um, so I would say, you know, we do a site inspection for every loan that we do. And it's it's not just a random person. It's your lender that you're working with will go to the site. I'm traveling to four storage facilities tomorrow to do site inspections. So we'll take a look at the, the size of the facility. One thing that I like to do is get inside a vacant unit and just do a quick sniff test. Does it smell damp? Does it smell like mold? Um, I try to get up and look at the roof if I can, um, especially if it's a screw down roof, just to see if there have been any kind of holes within the roof, because your biggest nightmare as a new owner is going to be people complaining about leaks. Um, but I've understood, I've seen some facilities that looked like a dog and someone took it over. We probably included some working capital to, you know, add some landscaping and a fence and, or redo the office. And it's amazing these transformations that they've been able to do. And by, by kind of investing in the property, that's when you can say to your tenants, Hey, I'm raising your rents by X percent. And they're kind of like, okay, I get it because I have a better, better, um, place to store my stuff now. So I would say those are the, the biggest things. And then just also when you're preparing projections, making sure that they're they're reasonable. If somebody is sitting 20% below market rates, raising those rates to market, you know, that's that's reasonable. If you say you're going to quadruple NOI within the four, you know, the first three months, lenders might say, hey, I don't know that I buy this. Um, so I would say, you know, physical, um, the physical uh, quality of the buildings is important but also taking a look at the underwriting to, to make sure that the projections are, are accurate and something that um, 
you know, isn't going to take too much work from the, the buyer to, to get to a nice stabilized um, uh, occupancy. What about products? What are, what, what type of, um, like, what are people doing as far as how much are they putting down? Are they going, you know, small business loans? Are they going traditional? Um, have you seen a shift in that? Uh, uh, what do you, what are you seeing and what are the pros and cons? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because for the past five years, I was exclusively an SBA lender within the space. So, um, and that's great. And it's a great loan product. You can do up to 90% financing with it. It's got a 25 year amortization. Um, but there are some kind of restrictions that scared away some types of um, storage owners. Uh, but we recently have built out a fully robust conventional lending um, wing here at the bank. Um, so it's the lenders who have that self-storage knowledge, and now we're going after the conventional market as well. So you're putting more money down, but there's kind of less restrictions. There's definitely less fees that you'll pay on a conventional loan compared to SBA. So it's really exciting for us because we know self-storage, and now basically we can work with any type of self-storage customer. We can work with a conventional guy. We can work with someone who wants an SBA loan. And then sometimes people don't know. And so we have to kind of get an application together, and the lender can work with them to figure out what is the best financing fit for what you need. Because you have to kind of balance what's most important to you. You know, is it leverage? Is it interest rate? You know, is it do you, is it an interest only period? So you kind of have to figure out what's the most important things to you, make sure you get a financing package that covers those things, knowing that it may not check everything on your list. All right, guys. So whether we're building a storage facility or, you know, we've got a facility that we've owned for however long or we're acquiring a facility that's, you know, 30 years old, whatever that is, we're always looking for ways to increase value, right? We're looking for that value add. One of the best ways to do that is through Janus International. Their R3 program, which is essentially a rehabilitation program for self-storage facilities, <laughs> which is drastically needed in so many cases, right? Because these assets in a lot of cases are very old. They're, they're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old in some cases, whatever that looks like, and they need a major facelift. They need new doors, they need new roofs, they need new siding, they need new gates and technology. Janus International provides those solutions for you. Check out the link in the show notes, bring up that value storage facility, and get in touch with Janus International. The self-storage industry is one of the most incredible industries to be a part of, real estate investment or otherwise. It's such an amazing community to, to be a part of and to enjoy. One of the big, huge things that self-storage has been absolutely lacking, though, is technology and that's where tenant inc comes in tenant inc is your one-stop shop solution for all things property management they have a plethora of amazing tools at your fingertips that you can use to optimize your facility to run it as smoothly and efficiently as possible to maximize revenues and to really drive value of your storage facility be sure to check out tenant inc link is in the show notes no, I love that. That was kind of one of my questions too, was the the products like AJ was saying, and then just what you're seeing uh, as as far as what are people's capital stacks generally kind of looking like? How are they, you know, what are they doing as far as the lending and, and all of that? Well, we see it all. We see people that it's, you know, just a husband and wife, maybe they've got nine to five jobs. It was always their dream to own their own, you know, small business. So they're buying a self-storage facility and they're kind of rolling over a 401k. So we see that. We also see, you know, fairly large, construction deals that have a, a, a complex capital stack where they're taking in investors um, and, you know, maybe the developers putting in things, you know, uh, personally as well. 
Um, so it really, it really depends. Like we're, we're going all the way from, you know, rural acquisitions up to these beautiful class A facilities and ma major markets. Um, so we're financing it all and we're seeing that, you know, not every deal looks the same. And that's kind of what makes it fun on the self-storage team is self-storage as a business is, is pretty similar. People put their stuff and they pay to do it. But what makes it really interesting is just the, the different deal profile every time. Mm -hmm. No, that's awesome. And I love that you brought up the fact too, that, that meshing your financing. I don't think this is something that a lot of people think about as far as their strategy. I think so many people focus on their value add strategy or whatever that might be, um, or their, their value proposition in a marketplace or whatever. But I don't know that a lot of people, especially for starting out, think about their financing strategy. And like you said, how that plays out over time, um, and you know what the exit looks like, you know, way down the road, and these other aspects that are that are huge. You know that that amortization period. Um, are you are there balloon payments at the end of this thing that's going to totally wipe out X, Y, and Z? I mean, that's such an important piece for so many people to think about. So I love that you brought that up. Did you see a lot of people yeah. that were moving into interest-only loans that are now readjusting or coming up due? That it's um, a problem or they're nervous about that maybe a structure wasn't a very good structure and uh, now that's you know changing kind of the outlook yeah I, I can talk a little bit about some some just from some firsthand experience from what I've seen in terms of lessons learned so I think the biggest mistake people make would be doing a construction project on a really short term um, you know, if it's two years or three years, it just does not give you enough time to build it and get it leased up. And so that by the time that balloon hits you, you're really not in an attractive place to, to get new lenders. And that's when you're stuck with the high interest rate bridge loan options. Um, so I always think like, I think structure is so important. People always get caught up on interest rate, but that's one piece of the package. Um, and structure is so important. And so if you're dealing with a turnaround acquisition, do you have the interest only months that you need to kind of raise the, the monthly income of the, um, the facility before full P&I payments kick in. If you're doing a self-storage development project, it is not just a construction project. It is a construction project that's rolling right into a brand new business that may take up to two years to break even on debt. So if you don't have the support for that lease-up period built into your financing, you're gonna, that's going to be coming out of your pocket. So I have a lot of people that went and they put 25% down and got a development loan and didn't realize that the development loan did not have any kind of consideration for the lease up period at all. So now they're through construction and they're, they're operational, but they are bleeding themselves dry personally trying to get through the lease up period. And lease up is normal. All markets have some period of lease up. Um, but you, if you don't have that support built into your financing, that means it's, it's going to be on you as the developer. So that's what I've seen of people just kind of being unprepared or underestimating the, the lease up. And, and that's why, to me, it's so important on these construction projects to look at those monthly projections and make sure that we have the customers back through building in interest only post-construction, making sure we have enough working capital into the loan. And then when the facility is operational, we check in every single quarter to get um, you know a P&L, a balance sheet, and then the management software summary report, just so we can cross-reference it against the projections. We know the developer is busy. They probably have other businesses that they're looking at as well. So it's just a nice second set of eyes to say like, you know, hey, Mr. Smith, thanks for sending it in. Congratulations, you're 30% of your ahead of your projections. That's great. You may not have even known. But then it's also a good wake-up call to say like, hey, you know, you're 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 20% behind where you were projected to be. You know, what is your take? That might be a little bit of a time for the person to reset and say, hey, you know, maybe th things aren't going as smoothly as I 
projected, do I need to take a look at my business? Do I need to tweak anything? Yeah, hundred percent. And um, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize this is a uh, uh, very comics. There's a lot of other things that um, come into play with governments and things like that. And you know, the coronavirus was a perfect example of what some people thought would take a year got expanded. I mean, it happened to us, and it was like, okay, this the, this conversion or this building project or this accept, like we're looking at like an eight month approval eight month approval turns into two years because they don't have employees. That is so true. And it's been, I've had, I've had so many people that are just frustrated when, you know, last year everybody was working from home and they were just waiting on the city for like a grading permit or something like that. And it was so much longer than they had been told it would be. And, and it's frustrating too, because it caught it, any kind of delay costs money. I don't care how you look at it. Um, Just because cost of materials is going up. So the longer it takes yep. to get started, or maybe you're burning through interest only months within, within your financing because you can't get something back from the city. Um, so, you know, that that unfortunately is something that people just have to navigate. I think it's definitely gotten better. I think we're past the worst of it, but that was a tough time trying to, because you're so dependent on the city to get them to approve it or have the fire marshal come out and look at your, you know, driveways and things like that. Um, but hopefully the, the worst is behind us there. Also, so too, on, on the acquisition side. So we, oh, yeah. we've we seen, you know, geez, I mean, almost all our acquisitions, it, it, the dates were getting blown out of the water and closed. It had nothing to do with us, right? We were ready to go. We had money ready, but it was third-party reports. It was lots, of, even we had sellers. It was like mm-hmm. it needs to be pushed back, right? Um, so the your point of having flexibility in timing when dealing with, this much money um, with dealing with, you know, these are contracts on the line. That's really, really important. I know it is for us, even in our shop, we put in 30 day extensions, right? Uh, we have a big project we're doing. We had, uh, you know, three months uh, due diligence, but just with the financing, everything, the first month was like obliterated, right? And so we had a 30 day uh, extension at the end of uh, of our time that we could exercise, we will a hundred percent use it. It's you know not even a question at, at at this point. And so you need to build that in. So if you're working on the financing side, right, and that seller maybe it's their first or their the, this buyer maybe it's their first time, they either didn't know they had to get a third party, they're trying to get reports, but they're not on top of it as of it as well as they should have been because they didn't they didn't know. Right. And then you're right. coming to them with questions and they're like, I didn't know I need to do I guess I'll start that. And then every time you do that, there's a delay in the communication between you, the bank, the seller, and it kind of pushes things, uh, things out. So when you go into buying that property, how can you make sure that you're with the bank, with the seller and you, you are not on the development side, but the acquisition side that you're walking into this and you're not getting yourself into trouble on the timeframes within the contract. Well, here's a, here's kind of a cheat sheet of things that I tell my customers. Um, and that, so if I were to put myself in their shoes, here's what I would do if I'm, I'm trying to finance a project. Number one, I would ask the seller, do you have a, do you have any surveys? Even if they're 10 years old, sometimes those, those can work. I would talk to um, the title company and the bank to say what type of survey is needed. And sometimes the bank, the title company might point their fingers at each other. Um, but, but I know for my customers, I say, hey, we need to um, get a title company with the standard survey exception removed. 
So ask the title company what type of survey that they're going to need to do that. Some title companies, it's no survey at all. Other title companies, it's just a boundary survey. Other title companies want the expensive also survey, which takes, it's the same thing. So lead time, it takes weeks. So knowing what you need as soon as you can, that way you have time to order those reports, especially before your due diligence period expires and your money goes hard. It's, it's just kind of so important. Um, I think it's never too early to talk to a bank. Um, to say like, hey, you know, th this is coming. I'm not under contract yet, but, um, you know, what do I need to, to get in file for you guys? Can I see what you're going to require as part of an application? Do you have any guarantor requirements for me? So that way, you know, if they run through the guarantor requirements, you can just be mentally say, you know, check, 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 check. I know I can work with this bank and then um, move move forward. Um, I would be really clear with the seller when you when you outline your purchase agreement, what you're going to need from them. So talk to the bank about what they're going to require to the seller. Because once you've executed that purchase agreement and you put in there, you need, you know, X, Y, and Z from the seller. If you come back two weeks later asking for, you know, something else, they might say, hey, this isn't what we agreed to. So just kind of being in alignment with all the people that you have to work with, with your financing source, with the seller, just to make sure everybody is a kind of aware of what needs to happen to get to that next step. And everyone's kind of in agreement about the time frame as well. Because um, if someone, if you, if the seller says, I only sell it to you, if you will give me a 30 day closing and you know, you don't have all cash, that's not something you should agree to if you want to get financing. 100%. No, that's such all good information. Those things, I mean, just the the surveys alone and, and coordinating with your team essentially on what everybody needs. We've had instances where we've had surveys done, we've gone through all these processes and then, you know, come to find out we actually need, you know, for CMBS in particular, where we actually need this different set of, you know, parameters included on these surveys or these other things where it's like, oh, dang, like, those are those are lessons we've had to learn the hard way a lot of times. Yeah. So that list that you just went through right now, like anybody listening, go back, listen to that, write all that stuff down. Um, and can you talk to, I can't remember exactly what you said, but the you talked about some strategy with the title company and a standard. Yeah, no, I was, so that's just our, our bank specifically, that's what we require on most of our projects. So talk to the bank mm. to see what kind of title commitment that they're looking to get. And then that can help you when you go to the title company, because a lot of times it's picked by the seller. It's not up to you to pick the title company, but you're going to have to work with them. So to find out kind of what, what they need. And then also just stay on top of them. If they say, okay, we'll get you something by, you know, Tuesday, if Tuesday rolls around, they haven't gotten back to you, follow up. Because it's amazing to me how much you get just by, like by following up and asking twice. Um, so that's more of just making sure that the bank and the title company are aware of each other's kind of requirements and how they want to work so that they can kind of work in tandem together. Um, because that. we have problems too, where, um, you know, the title company has a specific set of requirements. We have a set, specific set of requirements. And it's really important that we kind of understand those as, as early in the process as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, cause like you said, the surveys are not cheap. So, yep. I mean, if there's ways to help reduce those upfront expenses like that, I mean, all day. Yeah, no, I've seen people that like think that an ELSA survey is just needed. So they just go out and buy them and they can be $10,000 in some places. And then it's, it really hurts when the title company is like, oh, that's great, but I would have accepted a boundary survey. Um, so just, you know, don't don't spend more than you than you have to. Due diligence is so important, but make sure you're getting the right items. No, that's, that's awesome. Well, you mentioned uh, feasibility studies. And, you know, I, I think that this is a pretty I important piece. I, I know it is for us, but there's a lot of people out there that do feasibility studies 
um, of which I I do not believe are, are are good quality or or reliable. And there's nothing worse than paying for a feasibility study that gives you the okay, than you saying we don't accept it. You need right. to go to somebody else, and then they say it's not okay, and you've been in the six months. What are the things that you're looking for in a feasibility study? Like what what do you want to see out of that feasibility study? Um, then when you say we have an acquisition, right? What is the, what do you want that feasibility study to, to show you as well as the buyer? So typically for an acquisition, we're not going to require a feasibility study. Um, um, if someone wants to get one for their own kind of peace of mind, I'd fully support it. Um, but if we can get enough out of the seller's historical financial information and the projections kind of support the purchase price, you know, um, at a comfortable amount, then then we'll proceed without a feasibility study. Sometimes, it, you know, you might be walking into something where you're buying something, but it, it maybe it's, you know, um, 40% leased or something like that. Or I had one where someone was buying it and it was like 100% vacant because some seller had some kind of health issues and just shut down the business full stop. And so at that point, you really don't have historical financial information to rely on. So that's might be when you want that feasibility study, because you're essentially kind of doing a startup. So I would say um, if something is really, really tight on um, uh, their projections, we might say, you know, a feasibility study would be good for an acquisition. But typically, if we can get enough information from the historical data of the facility um, in, in, in partner with the buyer's projections, we can get comfortable. Um, it would be in, in, in very specific situations where a feasibility study would be required in development 100% of the time, unless you're, you know, adding on to an existing facility or putting up like you know, 10,000 square feet. No, oh, that makes sense. Um, all right. I want to talk about now the future. Where are things going? Where do you see things going? What are you hearing within the bank? What are you guys nervous about? What are you comfortable? Give us an outlook of today and what you guys are planning and seeing in the next six months. Right. Well, let me pull out my crystal ball really fast. Perfect. I mean, that's why, everything, that's why all of this it. is yep. all... What yep. we think. So, what, so yeah. What's the interest interest rate going to be in three months? <laughs> yeah. Um, so interest rates are, are are going up. You know, the the Fed is really trying to tamp down on the inflation that we have kind of going on right now by um, raising interest rates to kind of kind of cool things off. So, kind of the things that we've heard is that there have been some pretty steep increases this year. There's definitely another one coming. Um, and then they're projecting that the interest rates will fall in 2023. So one thing that you want to be careful if you're buying right now is, you know, if you're talking about locking in a rate, if you lock in a rate at the height of the market, that's not really the best financial decision. Um, and so I would say when you're looking at your financing, how long are you going to have it in place? Kind of what's the plan for that specific property? And then try to find um, financing that, that best matches the plan that you have. So um, if you think if you're doing a construction project and you feel like interest rates are going to go up a little bit and then go back down again, maybe a variable rate is something to do. You'll get a skinnier spread and you'll have to ride the interest rate up a little bit, but you can also ride it back down. Um, because if you decide, hey, I just want to fix it, I want to know what it is. And there's some value in kind of knowing what it's going to be for the next five years or 10 years or what have you. Um, but then if rates fall, you're going to be kind of sitting above and then say, mm, maybe I didn't make the best decision. So it really depends on the customer's risk profile and what they think is going to happen. If it's me, I think interest rates are going to, they're definitely going to go up a little bit more this year. Um, 
the Fed is meeting again sometime this month. We're going to figure out what happens. Um, but I think that it's going to come back down once they feel like they've gotten a handle on um, the inflation. So just make sure that your financing is kind of matching your long-term plans for the for the property. Gotcha. That's great. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about on that is prepayment penalties. So one of the things I'm nervous about, right, in getting in loans today is prepayment penalties, just because the fluctuation. So if I'm buying an, uh, if I'm acquiring a facility, um, me personally, I don't want prepayment penalties because I, I don't know what the outlook is going to be. I don't know what that interest rate is exactly going to be when we when we lock it in in two months. So I'm when I'm talking with banks, I'm, I'm trying to negotiate no prepayment uh, payment penalties. Now, I know as you look and a lot of people, they focus on the interest rates, like you said, but the terms actually to me are way more important. Uh, a a one-point fluctuation in interest rate is nothing compared to terms, good terms or bad terms, right? And so for me, I would take a higher interest rate to not have prepayment penalties. Uh, That would be more important to me. When you're looking at that, what are those trade-offs and what are you going to people saying, all right, you don't want to have prepayment penalties. Um, Is that okay? Do you see that? Or is it, if you do that, we've got to do something else to hedge? Well, so it depends on the product. So with an SBA loan, there is no negotiation around prepayment penalties. The SBA sets what they are and it is what it is. Um, So you need to know that and and kind of use that to inform your decision on which financing route that you're going going to use. so on the conventional side, everything's up for negotiation. So, but just know that if you're asking for no prepayment penalties, that you, if you're asking to take a little bit there, you might have to give somewhere else. And so that might come in the form of a higher interest rate. That might come in the high, in the in the form of the bank taking a higher origination fee. Um, so I think everything is kind of give and take. And so I think it's important to say to your lender, like here are the most important things to me. Um, and then they can kind of work to, if they're a good lender, can work to find something that fits kind of your um, your, your list of requirements. So if you're looking to, do, to kind of take those prepayment penalties off the table, just know that it might impact somewhere else. And then similar, like on the, on the flip side, if someone has something they know it's going to be a long-term hold, they love this facility, it's in their, you know, next to their church or something like that that's in their town, then maybe they can say like, hey, I'd like a lower interest rate. Um, and maybe the lever that they can pull is to have a stricter prepayment penalty. Um, so th- those are all different levers that you can pull, but it's just, you're not always going to get exactly what you want without giving somewhere else is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any, um, right now when people are coming to you, you know, in the last month, are you seeing any consistency on more of how people are shifting on those terms, what they want? Is, have you seen a change in people's asks in the terms? You know, I honestly don't, I don't feel like I have seen that as much. Um, I think people are most concerned about interest rates just because it's what they hear in the news all the time. So they're always asking about, you know, what's the interest rate, what's the interest rate, what's the interest rate? Um, and it's not my favorite phone call to get someone, you know, pick up the phone. Hello, on at Live Oak Bank. And they're like, what are your interest rates? And I'm like, whoa, like, who are you? You know, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Um, because I don't think that they like I think that they think the bank just like gives us a rate sheet and says, all right, kids, this is what you can do yeah. today. But really, it's all about your project. It's about how strong you are as a buyer, how strong the cash flow of the facility is. Because if I've got somebody who owns four facilities and is buying an existing facility, buying number five and it's cash flowing, he's going to get a very different 
you know, interest rate and financing structure than somebody who wants to put 10% down on a development project. Um, so just, just tell them, just say, you know, just say, listen, we have the lowest interest rates in town. And then when they go to you, give them the worst terms in town. And then you solved your problem. You're like, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I feel like that, that seems to be top of mind for a lot of people. And then um, a lot of people come to us too. They know we do a lot of self-storage. And so they're kind of saying, you know, well, how much should I, oh, for acquisitions, they look for a lot of guidance on what is the right purchase price to move forward. And I'm not telling them what the, the what I think the property is worth. I'm basically saying, if you want to put this much down, the purchase price should probably be around this for me to finance it. That's the kind of help that I can give them. Um, and then I can work with them too. If they meet all of our guarantor requirements, I can help drop a letter that they can send to the seller that really gives it some punch and maybe that they get picked over other buyers. Um, on the development side, they know we do a lot of development financing. And so a lot of times they're working off of estimated costs. So like I had someone today that was like, I want to do multi-story. Um, you know, I think it's going to be around $65 a square foot. Do you think that's accurate? And I was like, no, from what I've been seeing recently, I don't think that's accurate. That was probably accurate three years ago, um, but it's more expensive to develop right now. And that's the kind of value that I think that we can bring at the bank is just kind of knowing the market a little bit to kind of help people, you know, get under contract on an acquisition or find the right structure for development. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you're not the only one that gets that question because we see that a lot as like, hey, as uh, I got some land, is this a good deal? And it's like, no, I mean, like 300000 for a piece of land could be a great deal somewhere, and it could be exactly. a horrible yeah. deal somewhere else. Yeah, somewhere those else. oversimplifications, I'm sure you guys get that all the time. We're like, yeah. where are the overbuilt markets? You know, where, you know, what's a good market for me to what's build? What's a good market? Like, whoa, right. like a market is three miles. A three-mile radius, like, that's so small. Like, you what's know, the, you think what, I'm a, like, is there vacancy? <laughs> I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. Exactly. Yeah. Or like, find me the best market I want to do it. And I was like, listen, if it was, if I found the best market, I wouldn't tell you I would be building. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, super exactly. Expensive, expensive knowledge there. Um, talking, talking SBA specifically, since you have so much experience with that, can you just give a brief rundown of like what that process looks yeah. like and what the timeframes look like to, to sure. do that? I would be happy to do that. I think self-storage gets a bad rap, which I hate. We are, I love self, I love, um, sorry, not self-storage, SBA. Um, I've been doing SBA lending forever and it gets a bad rap because some banks, if they think they can't get it approved conventional, they try to slap an SBA label on it to get it past their credit team. Um, and that's not good. So we are very familiar with SBA. We're the largest SBA lender in the entire country, Live Oak Bank. Um, and so we really have kind of taken this a little bit complicated paper intensive loan process and tried to streamline it and, uh, as much as we can. So I would say if someone's looking at an SBA loan, the, the benefit you're going to get is leverage. You can do up to 90% leverage, which is really incredible considering you have to put 20, 25% down or more on the development side with conventional. So your cash on cash return is going to look so much better if you go SBA. Um, so for us, I know that we have the application and I always say the clock starts when you finish the application. Cause I have some people that are amazing and knock out the application in an hour. I have other people where I'm chasing them down for their tax returns for months being like, you know, what's going on here. Um, so we like to have at least, I would say 60 days from a complete application to close. We can do it faster. We've done it in like 45 days, but I just feel like that's a good, that's a good average. Um, and it, I think that'll help you when you're negotiating your um, PSA to your point to make sure you have enough time to do that. And I said, you know, and, and you're totally right. The more time you have 
because if something something goes bump in the night, it's always good to know you've got like a, an extension that you can just click on because something will something will be something that you didn't expect. There might be an easement on the property that the seller didn't know about, or the seller, um, you know, might have a their CPA is on vacation and they're you're waiting two weeks to get their their financial information. Um, so so knowing that you have enough time in the PSA is really important. Um, but I would say 60 days to complete application to close is very conservative and a reasonable amount of time to do an SBA loan. The, the lenders that can't hit that is probably they're not familiar with SBA. They probably don't have delegated authority to approve and close SBA loans in-house. So they basically have to underwrite and approve it. Um, and then they have to send it to the SBA to underwrite and approve it. And it's, it's like- That's a huge send, risk. Cause you're yeah. like, I hope you did it right. Well, it's like going to the DMV, right? It's like, take a number, we'll see you when we see you. Um, so the processing times there are, are um, can be long. So it's kind of nice if you're working with a, del a lender with delegated authority, you're just waiting on the lender because they know the rules from the SBA. They have clearance to close the loan without you know, um, sign off from the SBA. So I think that's, that's really important. But I really do like SBA loans. I don't think that they're gonna take you know, forever, like people, like people think, especially if you're choosing the SBA 7A product over the SBA 504. Because if someone comes to me and says, I've got an acquisition, I need to close in 60 days, I want to do an SBA 504 loan. I'm like, you just can't meet the timeline with that one. Because that loan, you do have to go to the SBA for their approval. And it just, it, it takes too long. Mm. No, that's, that's amazing. Um, there's so many things going on. And, uh, uh, you know, so much changing. And a lot of this really, comes down to individuals, individual products. So you, how can people here that are listening today saying, I now either have more questions or, right, this clears me up, I, I need some direct answers. How can they get a hold of you directly so they can give you a call and uh, you can help them out? Like, where should we direct people? Yeah, I mean, I, I am perfectly happy to provide my direct line at the bank. It rings directly to my desk. Um, that's 910-550-2272. Um, I'm happy to field any questions, help people find kind of what is the right financing package for their project, or just even talk through the industry a little bit if they're if they're kind of making offers on facilities to make sure that they're kind of meeting our guarantor requirements. I'm more than happy to, to help people through that process. Um, I, so many people call me and say, well, do you work with people that are not in self-storage yet? Um, cause a lot of banks will turn you away. It's like, you have to have experience in self-storage to get a self-storage loan. It's like, well, how do people get started? So I, if that is you do not be afraid. I would say 70% of my customers, I'm helping them get into self-storage for the first time. So dealing with somebody that does not have self-storage experience is not going to scare us away. I'd rather work with someone who has a strong plan for success. Um, and can tell me like, here's the opportunity. Here's why I think it's a good opportunity. And here's what I'm going to do to make it successful. Those are the type of people that we want to talk talk with. That's amazing. No, that is so much, so awesome. And um, sincerely, we really appreciate your time today, your knowledge. Um, once again, I think this is one of the things that's on the forefront of everybody's mind. So for sure. thank you for coming and kind of walking us uh, all through it and explaining. And we will put your information as well in the show notes for everybody so you guys have it. But we won't take any more of your time today. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, again, if there's anything that, that people want to know, just reach out. I'd be happy to help. Love awesome. It. Thanks Talk for time, soon. Anna.